This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Tuesday, July 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. When we last left the Swedes, they were essentially run by Nazis. Remember that one? Now, Britain's centre-left uh, Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson has conceded defeat and announced that she's stepping down following Sunday's general election. Andersson's Social Democratic Party and their left-wing coalition are lost by a thin margin uh, to the Conservative bloc, which includes the far-right Sweden Democrats, a party that has its roots in a neo-Nazi movement in the 1980s and 90s. Well, now Sweden is in NATO in a move that is said to bolster security, safety, and the expansion of liberal ideas. But what about the Nazis? Aren't they kind of the epitome of the opposite of those things? Well, the prime minister of Sweden, Ulf Christensen, not a Nazi. He's a moderate. But the moderates in Sweden are kind of right, and the largest party in his governing coalition are also not the Nazis. There's the Swedish Democrats, but... The Swedish Democrats, those are actually the Nazis we're talking about. They are the party that was formed from the vestiges of the Nazi party, plus the party's founders and early members were several people who had previously been active in white nationalist neo-Nazi political parties. So it's complicated. On the one hand, Sweden definitely should be in NATO, giving Turkey and Hungary a veto over Sweden. Joining NATO is like giving, I don't know, Roberto Benigni a vote for the best acting Oscar. He, by the way, has such a vote. Sweden is a progressive, forward-thinking, equitable, democratic country that now happens to be uh, lightly run by Nazis. Or if not run, certainly powered by a cadre of those who aren't not Nazis. But the country of Ukraine, which is why it's important for Sweden to join NATO with the war in Ukraine, the country of Ukraine itself is being bravely defended by certain units who are also not not Nazis. Again, a little bit complicated. Eh, maybe it's not that complicated. Maybe it goes like this. If you want to beat the bad Russians, you got to make certain accommodations with some flavor of Nazi. And while that didn't work for Neville Chamberlain, never say Neville, I guess. Or to quote Oscar voter Roberto Benigni, life, it is a beautiful, unless life is about trench warfare and cluster munitions and a grueling land war in Europe. And then it is a lot less a beautiful and a little more Nazi. On the show today, let's get something straight about affirmative action. Like it, hate it, oppose it, support it. Let's just get something straight. But first, Jake Tapper is CNN's Emmy-winning chief correspondent and host of both The Lead with Jake Tapper and the network's Sunday morning show, State of the Union. 
But in his downtime, he has downtime, he is a novelist. He's a pretty good one too. His third foray into fiction, All the Demons Are Here, a thriller is out today. Jake Tapper up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Jake Tapper's new novel, All the Demons Are Here, is the story of a brother and sister who team up, who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. At times, it looked like it might cost them their jobs, their reputations, perhaps even their lives. Okay, that's not entirely true, but they are two taglines from the respective trailers of All the President's Men and Easy Rider. And I picked those two movies because they're definitely informing the mood board that Jake Tapper must have been looking at in this his third novel following essentially the same set of characters, a politician and a zoologist, now they're children. It's now the 1970s, Evil Knievel's there, the son of Sam is lurking, Studio 54 is thumping, and CNN's Jake Tapper is back on the gist. Welcome back. I love that whole intro. Oh my God, that was fantastic. <laughs> that was really good. Went looking for America. Oh, so that was great. And you're right, They, they, they w- both those films were part of the mood board of the 70s uh, uh, for Ike, who is the motorcyclist in Montana, and for Lucy, who is the journalist in D.C. Absolutely. So the D.C. part, there's Woodward, there's Bernstein. And it strikes me, by the way, as a side note, this is probably the first time that there are characters in your book who you've had some dealings with, because when you wrote about the Rat Pack, you know, you never hung, hung out with Sammy Davis Jr., but certainly uh, Woodward and Bernstein are, cont- are people you've worked with. But you must have known a lot. You certainly knew a lot more about that world than the world of uh, Montana, biker gangs, uh, <laughs> evil Knievel. Correct. Why'd you delve in? Why'd you delve into that part of things? So it, it uh, I was hanging out at a fishing lodge in Idaho a couple years ago with some friends who were huge evil Knievel fans. And, uh, <laughs> I was trying to figure out what my next book would be about. I wanted to skip the seventies because I lived through them and I didn't find them all that, uh, interesting. They seemed kind of lame and the eighties seemed, you know, very top gunny. And, an older woman journalist who'd lived through the 70s as an adult uh, disabused me of the notion and told me there's really a lot of exciting things that happened during that time. Uh, you know, the Studio 54, as you note, opened, the New York City blackout, the summer of Sam, uh, a whole bunch of other things, uh, Elvis dies, etc. And then I was at this fishing lodge and these friends of mine loved Evel Knievel, who had uh, tried and failed to jump the Snake River just a few miles from the lodge um, back in 1974. And they told me to watch this documentary called Being Evil. Um, and I did. And I thought, wow, what a great quintessential American character, a showman who's really good at getting attention, really good at putting butts in the seats. Uh, there's kind of a there's almost a Donald Trump quality that he has in terms of that kind of ability, this media creature who's not actually a gifted motorcyclist, but just willing to try the most insane stunts possible. Um, and it just seemed like it would be fun to play with it, which is the same with, you know, why did I pick Sinatra in 62? That was for the previous book that I just thought it'd be fun. And it was, yeah, and, and it was, yeah. 
And I also know from your past appearances here on The Gist that what you like with these books is that they represent a respite from current events. So in your first one, The Hellfire Club, you could lose yourself to some degree in the moral clarity of the 50s, Margaret Chase Smith and so forth. Was that is that still a part of why you write these books? Yeah. Stepping outside of the day-to-day uh, news, having a, a relief, having a respite from that. But I do find myself writing about themes that are part of the, the life, my life today, our lives today. So in, in the Hellfire Club with Joe McCarthy, obviously there was a moral clarity to that time, but there was also something resonant about Republicans uh, not being willing to stand up to Joe McCarthy and his lies uh, until they finally did. And then um, in 62, that was uh, that, the book about the, the Devil May Dance was much more about Hollywood and yep. there was a lot more just about the the sexism and misogyny of Hollywood and what looks great and romantic on the surface, what it's really like, what Hitchcock was really like, et cetera. Um, and then this book, obviously, with the, a demagogue leading a pack of um, aggrieved uh, individuals across the country to make a, you know, to take a stand against what they saw perceived as injustices. And then Lucy joining a tabloid, because obviously tabloids were a huge part of 1977, with its um, enticing and more entertaining and more exciting, but also more ethically shaky view of uh, journalism. Both of those seemed resonant today as well. Right. The 70s were days of rage, as was noted at the time. And in your book, you talk about uh, a hodgepodge conglomeration of people described as angry people with grievances. So it's clear that you were once again taking an historical event and applying it, or at least examining it through the lens that you can't escape today doing what you do. Right. But but I also tried to look at um, the mob and also at the, uh, the, the Rupert Murdoch character, who in the book is named Max Lyon, and try to see the world through their eyes. Um, yeah. Not everybody who is in that angry mob uh, is is wrong to be aggrieved. There are, you know, obviously there are veterans who feel from the Vietnam War who feel like society turned their heads and spit on them. Uh, there are veterans from the Vietnam War suffering from, although it wasn't acknowledged at the time, Agent Orange. There are people who have legitimate grievances in that mob. Uh, there are people who have illegitimate grievances, but are innocent folks, the UFO peoples, the, the yo-yos, I call them, in that mob. And then um, and then there are some bad characters as well. And I, I thought that it would be interesting to try to look at the mob uh, through the eyes of somebody in the mob, who is Ike, um, who is the, you know, the guy working for Evil Knievel, who, who is part of it. And then Lucy, one of the things that Rupert Murdoch's character in my book, uh, Max Lyon, says is he... he he talks about what has inspired him to uh, become a journalist and his issues uh, with journalism and the idea that he said, there's a quote from here. It's on page 90. He says, I can't, this is Max, who is a Rupert Murdoch like character. I cannot help wondering whether there is any other industry in this country that presumes so completely to give the customer what he does not want. And I put that in there because that's an actual quote from Rupert Murdoch. And I put that in there because I thought, I understand why he would think that. That yeah. makes sense, especially in the context of the New York Times not really covering the Summer of Sam, uh, except kind of as a local crime story, whereas the New York Post and the New York Daily News are seeing huge revenue increases from newsstand sales because people are terrified and they want to know more about this. I can understand it. And I so I didn't, you know, I didn't want him to be like a Mr. Burns 
you know, evil character, just pure evil. You can't understand why would Mar- why would Lucy even be hanging out with him? Well, some of the things he's saying make sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's just so much more interesting when you take those characters that we see as evil or stand-ins, avatars of the people now who are evil to problematic and really flesh out all their nuance. It's, it's I don't know, as, especially within a novel. I don't know, you tell me how much can you do it in the format of news, but I always find it a lot more interesting than the black and white take on things. I agree. And, and uh, there was, I think Ang Lee, the director, said that we, we pretend so we can tell the truth. And he's talking about his movies. But I think that that is one of the things about that motivates me about fiction in a way. Um, I can say anything I want about Max Lyon uh, because I am the world authority on him. I made him up. Um, right. I can't say anything I want about Rupert Murdoch, and and obviously, um, you know, I I've never even met him. So, uh, but there are larger truths that one can tell. I think in fiction that um, maybe pale in comparison with what a journalist is able to do on a day to day basis. Although I, you know, I like you attempt nuance in my journalism and in my reporting. Uh, sometimes you know the you're just telling facts and reporting and and. Uh, you can't really get to the larger truths of motivations and the like. Like if yeah. you're like if you're if you're covering, for instance, of you know the Fox lawsuit, uh, Fox losing the you know Fox the payoff with Dominion seven hundred eighty-seven point five million dollars. Yeah, that's what you're covering. You're not covering. Well, let's examine why Rupert Murdoch got into the business of journalism to begin with, and he wasn't wrong about everything because that's what we're not covering. We're not covering that now. We're t- talking about that they were wrong about the about this quite a bit. Or you have someone on the show, like, say, I'm going to pick a person in the news, Nancy Mace. To me, she's really interesting. She, because she has She has layers and depth and motivations, but she also is on your show, not to reveal them, but to get her current talking points out, or at least her point of view out. So you need to do that. You need to engage her on that level. Like, where's the leeway? How can you really even attempt to figure out or engage her in figuring out, you know, why are you doing this? How are you positioning yourself? Is this uh, born of psychology? Is this born of strategy? Those are the fascinating questions. And it does seem to me, I I can't, I've never heard that with her. Uh, We tried to do that. I'm sorry to pick on only, not pick on, but cite only female politicians. But we we tried to do that a little bit with Senator Gillibrand. And I think it's worth it, but it seems like this is just something that eludes us. Yeah. You know, that, that would be such an interesting TV show to sit down with a politician and put them on the couch yeah. uh, or not just politicians, but you know, anybody in public life and trying to figure out motivations. Why did you do this? Why did you do yeah. that? Nancy you'd have to work. You'd have to work with them. So, you know, they'd be getting something out of it, but it would have to be clear what the format was and they'd have to, you know, see the benefit of really <laughs> laying out at least what their <laughs> it's never going to happen. It's such a, yeah, I mean, no, it's such no, a right. dream idea. Just, it's such a, it is a great idea. Like trying to like, so Congresswoman Nancy and Nancy Mace is a perfect example because she is interesting. Uh, and she surprises you and she kind of like zigs and zags. One moment she's doing this, next moment she's doing that. And you try to understand the motivation. She doesn't want to talk about the motivation. She doesn't want to talk about like how she is. And it's it, you're right. It's unfair of us to pick on her because all politicians are like this. So let's just say I'm just going to make up a different person. Let's just say Adam Schiff. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, why is Adam Schiff doing this? Why is Adam Schiff doing that? He's running for Senate. He's, you know, but. We don't really have the time for that because we're more focused on the issues of the day that affect the American people or that are, you know, relevant. Um, And that's where fiction comes in because we can dive into whatever we want, Um, whether it is a fictitious politician or a fictitious uh, uh, journalist. 
So a second ago, you said that it's a it's a benefit of fiction of the form that you could really plumb some of the depths of a Rupert Murdoch type character. I have two questions about that. What about not the type character, but the actual historical figure? So Frank Sinatra came off pretty well in your last book. Maybe we we didn't know that he would. That was a bit of a reveal. Whereas um, L. Ron Hubbard didn't, but what do you owe L. Ron Hubbard? <laughs> now, let's take Evil Knievel, or yeah. let's take how much leeway do you have with historical figures where you don't want to malign them and just make up stuff about Senator Danforth, right? Or right. someone else who's mentioned your he, book. He pops so, up as a freshman, yes. Yeah, but maybe there is plausible uh, way. First of all, you can't malign a dead person. You can't uh, you can't libel a dead person. But what are your rules about how far to go in um, making these historical figures perhaps out to be less than heroes? It's such a great question, Micah, because it is it is something that I grapple with. I grappled with it more in the first book, uh, and then after the first draft, I said, "Am I doing this or am I doing this?" And I went back and I. And I put Joe McCarthy and I put Roy Cohn in more scenes. I had had a fictitious kind of stand in for them. And I just said, no, I'm just going to do like this is in character for Roy Cohn. This is in character for Joe McCarthy. So the general rule, I think, is you can't have them doing something that is out of character. Uh, You can't make anybody, you know, purely evil who's a real person unless they are an actual, you know, purely right. evil person. I mean, I don't think L. Ron, L. Ron Hubbard isn't a purely evil person in the book. He's certainly not a hero. Um, but uh, it just, you have to stay true to the situation. And d- did I think it would be, I read a lot about Evil Knievel. I read a lot about him to figure out like, well, what would he do? What would he not do? Uh, what did motivate him? What was actually going on in his life at this time? And I felt like I landed in a place that was fairly credible. I was worried, I'll be honest, about what one of the kids or widows of them might say. Um, but that hasn't happened. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. I didn't hear from any of the Sinatra kids. Uh, I didn't hear from uh, any of the Kennedys. They probably don't. They're probably sick of reading about their spouses and cousins and ancestors anyway. Yeah. There's one detail, and I mean this, um, yeah, this isn't a gotcha. I wonder about your thinking. You set a scene, Ike, the, uh, the character who joins the Marines, he's in high school, and the dynamic is between boys from Georgetown Prep and a girl who went to Hilton Arms. And if my listeners can recall, these were the schools that Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford, right. before she was Christine Blasey Ford, went to. And this was not, it wasn't, they weren't meant to be stand-ins. The events in the book take place in the 70s, and that supposed or alleged encounter took place in 1982. Why that? Why those schools? What were you doing there? Those are fancy schools. Uh, Georgetown, I was just trying to think, like, where would Congressman and then Senator Charlie Martyr and and wife uh, Margaret, where would they send their kids? And they would send them to fancy prep schools. And, And that just made sense to me. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a party atmosphere as it would be for any, uh, any teenagers in the seventies, I would think the, the, the bad, you know, the bad run-in he has with one of his friends, um, is not his friend, uh, doing anything comparable in any way to what Brett Kavanaugh was accused of doing. It was just, it was just prep school kids. That was really honestly it. I was just, it, 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 um, People I know who grew up in that era who came from fancy families like Julia Louis-Dreyfus went to Georgetown Prep and Holton Arms. I mean, that's just where they went. 
So this is, uh, we talked for a second about putting those politicians on the couch. I'll put you on the couch okay. a little bit. Is there an element to this? So in your daily life, you're always trying to corral politicians and newsmakers, and they're evading you sometimes. Every once in a while, they'll insult you. By the way, Lindsey Graham seems to be doing that these days. How dare you ask me the question? Right. But they're at least frustrating. Is there an element where you get to be in control? Yes. The chess master, the puppet master. 100%. You Yes. 100%. Yes. I get to be in complete control, say what they say, uh, uh, come, you know, make them answer questions or don't answer questions, explain their motivation, everything. Yes. That's always been a motivation from the very beginning. Although I have to say, fiction is tougher than nonfiction. Fiction is much tougher than nonfiction. Um, I'm I'm writing a nonfiction book right now. um, And I wrote one, as you know, uh, about the uh, about Afghanistan years ago and the outpost, the the nonfiction. um, It's not easy, but you don't have to make anything up. It's just like you just have to find out what happened and report it. Uh, Maybe try to explain why it happened or detail how it happened. But you, you don't have to invent anything. And inventing is the really tough part. Do you think writing these books has in any way affected any questions you ask, any way you approach any interviews that you do on CNN? Only in terms of the historical research I do to learn about things. Um, so, for instance, a, a, a project I'm working on about journalism in the 1790s, like learning about um, how John Adams had journalists arrested. The Alien and Sedition Act. Yeah, the yeah. Alien and Sedition Act to criticize the government. Like, that, I mean, I knew about it, you know, I, I learned about it in school, but like diving into it, learning about it, learning about the journalists he actually put in jail uh, and and the like, that enhances my understanding of today in a great way. Um, so yeah, the historical research, yes. The, the fictitious parts, no. I want to ask you a couple questions about the news business and CNN's place in it, your place in it, since this is a theme of the book and Lucy talks about sure, it. Sure, of First course. of all, will CNN be one of the, I don't know, three to five most important news brands in a decade? I think so. I think CNN will. And, and the reason I think it will is because both the brand and the mission of CNN, um, we are, in my view, the only news network that is 100% about news that is terrain for Democrats and Republicans to come and share their views uh, that does not have an ideology that is political. In my view, that's CNN at its best, and there will hopefully always be a place for that. There also is, we were just talking about journalism in the 1790s, there also is a place for ideological journalism. Uh, and I don't, I don't begrudge it. I think the difference is it needs to kind of label itself as ideological journalism. Um, and I think that's an important distinction. But that said, yes, I do think there will be a place for seeing. I think there always will be, because like no matter where the media goes or, I mean, and we are, as you know, Mike, and you cover it all the time, it's like we have no idea what anything's going to look like or 10 years, 20 years, whether it's podcasts or books or movies or TV shows or news. But I do think that no matter what it is, there will be a place for a network that is airing, you know, I'm looking right at my screen right now. It's uh, Joe Biden is is doing a press conference and a, a news network to air that press conference. And they're not rooting or rooting for or against Joe Biden. They're just covering Joe Biden. What do you think of, I'll give you a couple phrases that are maybe more controversial than they ever have been, platforming, the critique that you're platforming bad ideas. 
I think that that's a legitimate critique. Um, these are conversations that we have in newsrooms about um, whether somebody, whether it's better to air something live or on tape. Uh, yeah. How much do you air somebody that you know is a liar and the lies are potentially dangerous? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, th- those are those are important conversations. Jake Tapper is the chief DC anchor and chief Washington correspondent for CNN. His weekday show is The Lead with Jake Tapper, and he co-hosts with Dana Bash, State of the Union on Sundays. The new book is All the Demons Are Here. Jake, thanks for coming on The Gist again. As always, a, a, a huge pleasure, and I love your show, and keep up the great work. And oh, what a Pesca Plus version of this interview we have. We talk about media as a whole, CNN's place in it. I don't make Jake squirm, but I do put tough questions to him. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get extended interviews, to get rid of all these ads, and to see other tiers of service that I provide. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. The Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling was bound to be controversial, and it was, but what I notice is that certain prominent outlets and arguers have attempted to make it seem like less of a complex question, more of a clear-cut case for which no reasonable person could disagree. The ruling will mean that black and Hispanic enrollment at elite institutions will decline. That in and of itself is not a good thing. It's not good if black and Latino kids are underrepresented in the institutions which propel attendees to success and power. But it's also not good to get there through means illegal or unfair. The question of what constitutes fair is complex. That's my thesis. That's my whole thesis. It's complex. Some people are telling you otherwise. The affirmative action ruling is opposed by exactly the sorts of thinkers and partisans who point out that the court is out of touch with public sentiment. That alone isn't enough to discredit any ruling, yet I do think it's a fair point to make in cases where the court does violate norms. If you could point to certain decisions that the public doesn't support, that's bad news for the court's enduring, let's say, legitimacy. Dobbs is such a prominent ruling. The Bruin gun case is another one. Uh, when it starts to be felt, the gun case, there will there is every indication that it will generally be unpopular. But Take some proper verdicts, verdicts that are essentially uncontroversial. I'm going to cite a 9-0 ruling that I never saw any expert, any good expert, rebutting. And that's the question of should social media sites be sued, allowed to be sued, if terrorists use the platforms to plan attacks? 9-0 verdict. No one said it was an improper verdict that I know of. And yet it's quite unpopular with the public. So popularity alone is not dispositive. It is a data point. But I do think it's incumbent on a good faith arguer to acknowledge what the data actually says. Dobbs is unpopular. Good point. But using race to give some advantage in the college selection process, that is also unpopular. And that sentiment is reflected in poll after poll after poll, with notable exceptions, one notable exception that I will talk about. But it's also reflected in votes, in referenda, referenda in red, purple, and quite blue states, Texas, Michigan, California. Affirmative action loses and loses badly, gets trounced. So to fairly assess the situation, you would have to say affirmative action in college admission, though unpopular, is the right thing to do. That's not easy to say that. I'd respect you if you said that. Some scholars don't say that. Here is Harvard professor Jill Lepore, asked by PBS's Margaret Hoover, to assess the affirmative action ruling. 
I think a chief consequence of this affirmative action decision on the part of the court, coming on the heels of a series of other decisions that were at variance with public opinion, not that they didn't satisfy a large segment of the American population's political preferences, um, but were at variance with probably majority public opinion and whose legal logic is a little bit illegible, if not largely illegible, even to constitutional scholars. Like, how did you get to this result again? I think that does erode confidence in the court. I sense Laporte knew that the point about the popular program of affirmative action wasn't her strongest point. She knew she was on unassailable ground when she pivoted to Dobbs as being confidence eroding. All right, that's one Ivy League professor and New Yorker writer. Here's another Ivy League professor and New Yorker writer, Jelani Cobb, who wrote an obituary of sorts for affirmative action in the New Yorker the day the ruling came down. His conclusion, quote, As with abortion rights, this case deals with a policy that the majority of the public supports. In a recent poll, 63% of Americans said that the Supreme Court should allow colleges to consider race and ethnicity in admission, but that the majority of conservatives wish to see ended. The Dobbs decision last year furthered suspicions that this court, with its 6-3 supermajority of conservatives, operates simply to translate Republican priorities into the law of the land. But last fall, faith in the court had fallen to a new low. Just 47% of Americans placed a great deal or fair amount of trust in the federal judiciary, reflecting a 20-point drop from the results of a similar poll two years earlier. This ruling will potentially exacerbate that distrust, and with good reason. There was a poll, one poll, with weird backward wording that came to the bizarre outlier conclusion that the public likes affirmative action. There were dozens of other polls. There were the votes of actual voters who say that they don't like affirmative action in admission in college. The wording of that one NORC poll is, do you think the Supreme Court should or should not prohibit the consideration of race and ethnicity in admission. This might not seem confusing to you, but when you have a negative, should not prohibit, you're going to get a lot of people saying, no, they should not do that. And should not do that is counted as we support affirmative action. It's why the one poll was skewed. By the way, to be technical, John Roberts said a college could still consider race if addressed in an essay. In any event, I did wonder how a New Yorker writer and the New Yorker editors, who also edit the very best reporter on this issue, Jenny Sook Gerson, who correctly identifies the public sentiment on this issue, how they could allow that. Is it propaganda, an honest mistake? Maybe you just think of an essay as a prosecutor's brief. Is it motivated reasoning? I don't know. It doesn't really matter what the motivation is. But the statement, the sentiment is wrong. It's inaccurate. It misleads the reader. And it's not trivially wrong. If all the arguments go one way, it's much easier to come to the conclusion, to not even engage in hard thinking about the conclusion, to tell yourself, to tell your audience, this actually isn't complicated. Most troubling is what Cobb's actual job is, like Lepore, he's a professor, an Ivy League professor, but not just any Ivy League school. He is at the Columbia School of Journalism. In fact, he's the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism. I would say that no one in America, maybe A.G. Salzberger, has a bigger role in defining what journalism is in the United States. The insistence on the popularity of affirmative action as a brick in the edifice of an overall argument about losing faith, not just in the decisions, but in the very institution of the court that troubles me. 
Aside from the mischaracterization of affirmative action as popular with the public, thus flattening the complexity of the issue, there was a major strain of what I consider inaccurate characterization of the rulings. Many outlets did not air dissenting voices, voices that dissented from the polled and documented mainstream Asian American opinion that affirmative action hurts them. And that's fine. It's fine to find these other voices to give space to the minority of Asian opinion who favor the policies, even though the policies often deprive Asian Americans of placement at top institutions. I say let's hear their reasoning. But these outlets go further. They assert that the programs do not discriminate against Asians and that the only reasons that Asians were involved in the lawsuits wasn't due to Asian people correctly assessing that their chances of admission are hurt under the current regime of affirmative action. No, it's that just that they were tricked into believing a lie. Here is an NPR report quoting an academic named Oyen Poon. Predominantly white conservative political forces are leveraging This experience of being racially marginalized among Asian Americans to say, yeah, and by the way, there's this policy that you're not benefiting from. Poon, who on the day of the ruling tweeted, quote, fuck SCOTUS on their 6-3 shit, was further quoted by the NPR reporter, Sandia Dirks, approvingly and without rebuttal. There is no evidence that there's a practice of anti-Asian discrimination. But there is evidence. There's lots of evidence like the attractiveness of the argument that the court ruled against affirmative action even though the public is for it, it's also attractive to an opponent of what the court said to argue there's no evidence that Asians were discriminated against and also that B, Asians only participated in the lawsuit because they were duped into doing so or got in touch with their inner racism. The Dirk story quotes an activist as saying, Asians serve as this sort of mask for white privilege, a mask that white privilege can wear in order to hide itself. And there's no rebuttal anywhere within that report. The arguments that Asians are being used are belied by the numbers. Harvard's own analysis of how admission rates would be affected if affirmative action were to end has the percentage of white students increasing by over 20% and the percentage of Asians increasing by 12.5% to over a quarter of the student population. That is a remarkable achievement for a population that is only 6% of Americans. Here's a bit of chicanery undertaken by the Harvard Admission Office, as described by Harvard professor and New Yorker writer Jenny Sukgerson. I think centered around the fact that Asian Americans had higher academic and extracurricular ratings than white applicants and yet had the lowest, as a group, the lowest personal ratings and certainly lower than white applicants. So to me, the comparison of white and Asian is really the relevant comparison for determining whether there was intentional discrimination against Asian Americans. If you're a fair person, at least as I would define a reasonable definition of fairness, I think you'd be morally compelled to conclude that Harvard was engaged in discrimination against Asian Americans. You would see all the evidence of them taking points off of the personalities of Asian Americans to deny them admission, to look at their higher scores, their higher extracurricular achievement, their higher empirical scores that would argue for their admission— and to mark them down, and you would say, that is wrong, that is unfair, something should be done about that. I don't know how a fair person, as opposed to a motivated person, would say that Asians weren't subject to discrimination. 
Now, as far as the argument that the only reasons that Asians were in this lawsuit is that they were being used, they got tricked into being in the lawsuit. Yeah, we all know about situations where a very atypical example is trotted out and made the face of an issue said to be something like the median beneficiary of a policy when they are a far, 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 several standard deviations away from the actual median beneficiary. Think of the plight of the so-called poor farmer said to suffer from having to pay estate taxes when, in fact, the typical estate tax beneficiary is a wealthy professional in the top 0.2% of earners. It's the same with Asians as a mask. Asians being a dupe, an extension of white privilege and racism. The plaintiffs in the case estimate, and Harvard doesn't dispute, that without the affirmative action policy, a thousand more Asian students will be admitted to Harvard than would have otherwise over the next decade. And we have real-world examples to look at. California eliminated affirmative action in 1996. Asian students made up 43% of Berkeley's freshmen in the fall of 2022. That was up from 37% in the affirmative action year of 1995. White students accounted for 20% of Berkeley's freshmen last year, down from 30% under affirmative action. They ended affirmative action and the share of white students declined. Of course, who lost spots were black and Latino applicants. Now, overall in the UC system, Latino enrollment has recovered. Black enrollment and admission in the flagship universities has not. That is a fact. That is an uncomfortable fact. And that is a hard fact that begs to be grappled with. What I don't do is present all the arguments as if, no, there are no trade-offs. There are no competing principles. It's all competing principles. I don't tell you, no, no, no. It's a simple issue of racism versus anti-racism. I don't say it's a simple issue of the Supreme Court constantly rebutting the public or that it's a simple issue of the false narrative of discrimination. This is a complex issue, should be treated as such, And at the risk of a bit of oversimplification myself, maybe you should think about anyone telling you that no hard thinking is involved. Maybe you should think they might not be the most trustworthy sources to rely upon. That's it for the show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com. Slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Duperu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>